Today's scripture is Romans 10, 5 through 13. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that is, the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Good morning. How's everyone doing this this wonderful rainy day? We needed rain. It was just Can I get a amen? <laughs> My name is Sam. I'm uh, one of the elders here at Watermark uh, and uh, Tommy is out this morning. Um, he was in the conference uh, out of state uh, sometime this uh, this last week and so I'll be sharing this morning. And uh, I'll be talking specifically from this passage. So we're taking a break from, uh, uh, from the Matthew, and uh, we'll, go, we'll sort of dive into this. And so this morning, we'll sort of look at, we're not going to look at all of this. We're going to look at some of the key parts of this, and I think some of the common misconceptions or how we handle the idea of salvation, um, how we may look at it from a contract perspective when God wants us to look at from a covenant standpoint. Uh, We'll also talk about what it means for us in terms of context in a sort of a missional living environment. So uh, let's pray and get started. So Father God, thank you. Thank you for your church. Thank you, Lord, for your community. Thank you, Lord, for your son and the sacrifice that has been made. Thank you that you're so patient with us that you continue to work in our hearts. I pray this morning you'll uh, help me, help all of us to be focused, um, help us not to be distracted, and help us to focus on what you have to say. We also take time, oh God, to pray for um, people in London, for others who have been affected and impacted um, by evil in this world. And we know the solution, the only solution is you, Jesus, the Prince of Peace. And we speak that peace, Lord, um, in the cosmos, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, My first mission trip that I went to was a place called Culiacan uh, in Mexico. Uh, It's quite beautiful. Um, Even though it was one of the first places I was like, police are, you know, in the back of trucks with AK-47s or whatever the gun is. I don't know guns. Um, but they had big guns and it just seemed, uh, you know, kind of crazy, uh, from what I understand now, this was about 20 years ago, but now from what I understand, uh, they are struggling with some crime. They're struggling with some cartels and stuff like that. Um, but the first mission trip we did, it was with a youth group and we went, uh, 
and did like sort of evangelistic crusades. Well, just short of a crusade, not really full out things. Sort of, you know, we would pray for people. We would help with vacation Bible school, which is coming up in our church soon. So my wife told me to give a shout out for that. So <laughs> I checked the box. Um, and and some of the things that we did was the sort of, you know, we'll do some sort of a drama, we'll do some sort of a thing, too embarrassing for me to recall, too traumatic for me to recall, all those events, uh, but there will be some sort of a, a, you know, like, sort of a call, an altar call of some sorts, and, you know, they would raise their hands, the little kids, most of the time we were doing it to children, um, to sort of do this uh, evangelistic message, uh, and we will count how many kids have raised their hands to accept Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. And we, we will sort of report back. And it's funny because I was like thinking about it. I also forgot that we packed a lot of candy in the suitcases. And so we would go and give this message. And then afterward for the kids that gave them, I don't know if we gave to the kids who didn't raise their hands. That would be a little bit, <laughs> you don't get candies. Um, you get to go to heaven and you get a candy. And so it was a little bit odd, but there's obviously this incentive for you to raise the hand, uh, raise your hand to accept Jesus. And probably, they probably had this sort of scheme going. If you think about it, they probably did it week after week with new groups, new missionary. Ooh, there's a you know, new uh, missionary team in town. Let's, uh, let's go get some candy if I was a kid. My wife told me this was sort of the similar experience that she had. Uh, growing up in the island of St. Lucia. Uh, she was around eight years old, and pretty much sort of the same experience, she sort of realized, and everyone realized, you get sort of a candy, you get some sort of an incentive at the end. And, uh, you know, to think about it this way, you don't think of it much back then, because you're, you're excited to get something. You're excited. It's not that, you know, they're just raising their hands for this Jesus candy. They probably did it with every, you know, youth group that came in. So, so it, it's this similar experience. And, and, you know, the kids who say yes to Jesus, they got all the candy at the end. And, I mean, almost most kids will do anything for chocolate or bars or whatever, let alone decide what you're going to do for all of eternity. So I know they're children, but it did seem a little manipulative <laughs> Uh, to do this, where you're saying a prayer, for, and then, you know, you get a candy at the end. So, for adults, it may not ex- be exactly the same, but I think sometimes we have these evangelistic methods and our understanding of salvation uh, with sort of the same components of this incentive. You say a prayer, and you get to go to heaven. You say a prayer, and you believe, and you say you believe this, and you get to go to heaven, or you, you get to avoid hell. And so, I think we'll talk about this issue of presenting the gospel in this manner. Uh, there's, a, there's a guy, um, everybody knows a guy, but there's a guy that I know uh, in, uh, I think he's in Barbados now, but uh, Jerry, we used to call him Uncle Jerry, uh, but he was pretty high up in the uh, Caribbean Christian Evangelical Association. And he had access to a lot of data. Um, over there. And one of the things that he told me was, he was able to take, for this one country, he was able to take all the salvation data, analyze it, calculate it. Everyone in this country, well, this country alone was about 500% saved. 
So if you take into all the account, all the prayers, and I'm sure there's some exaggeration. You know, some people might have said, oh, you know, we got like 890 people in actuality, but let's say 1,000, almost 1,000. Praise the Lord type of deal, you know? And, and you could, I mean, 500%, approximately 500% saved is saying that one person, every person in that country said the prayer five times. And I thought this was pretty depressing <laughs> for me as a missionary at the time. Uh, and working with, with church and missions organizations, it was like, man, it was like, have we got something wrong? And, uh, and I was sort of going back to my own childhood too, and I was like, man, I probably said the prayer at least like 12 times. Um, so I'm not alone in this regard, I guess. But for me, when I heard that, it was a little bit, I think, dis- kind of disillusional to understand sort of the methods and what we been doing. It does sound effective, but we have to look at the results. What are the results? Is it real? And at the end of the day, obviously, God is the only judge of the heart. Um, but is there, is there something wrong? Is there a flaw in how we introduce Jesus in this matter? Is there something wrong where we're able to, you know, present the gospel in this way, and somehow we've gone astray? You know, and that you have to think about, well, how did the gospel How did the early apostles in the early church understand salvation? Um, There's also a popular method of evangelism several years ago um, that my uh, friends, some of them were pastors and missionaries, were using. And they told me it's highly effective. you got to do this, Sam. Like, that's the newest pitch in town, I guess. Whatever. And basically, the, the method is, uh, usually within a street evangelism uh, type of setting, you go to a stranger, and you start a conversation, and then you ask them if they know the Ten Commandments. And if they know the Ten Commandments, they start asking, you know, um, have, you ever, um, have you ever committed adultery? In Jesus' definition of committing lust, have you ever stolen? Have you ever lied? And they'll say, yes, yes, yes. Well, by your own, own admission, you're a liar? You're a thief and you're an adulterer. So if God is just and if he is a good judge, do you think he'll let you in? And so that, that is sort of this, this, this methodology, I think, that people are working with. And so you may say for some people, well, what's wrong with that? And in many ways, it might seem biblically sound, but it shouldn't be based on what we think is a good idea or what is traditionally accepted um, it has to sort of be viewed through Jesus in mind. It has to pass the Jesus test. So what did Jesus do? Well, first, Jesus does talk about heaven and hell and afterlife, but he seemed to be much more interested in the here and now. He didn't really go around asking people, hey, you know, all the commandments, did you keep this? It was more of the Pharisees and the scribes and, and some of the religious leaders that were doing this, making sure people were keeping in line. And obviously, even with the disciples, he did correct uh, their belief, but there was this invitation to come, follow me, come, follow me. And so he seemed to focus on building trust and faith and not entirely set out on correcting what people believed. He, I think, focused on belonging first. So it was more like, I think, the people around him knew they were sinners and they desperately needed the sense of saving. And when we talk about hell, and, and I think the word that Jesus used with Gehenna, 
It usually was this caution and a strong warning to the religious leaders and the Pharisees at the time of the hypocrisy, making sure all the people within Israel was following uh, the commandments uh, as strictly as possible, but totally neglecting the weightier things of the law, which is justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Additionally, his mandate before his ascension to his disciples was not win souls. You don't really see that. What he says in the Great Commission is to baptize them and make them disciples in all nations. And so when you're talking about discipleship, you're talking about relationship in nature. It's much more tougher to do that than to sort of get people saved in that sense. So he was stating that what I did for you, you do for others. How I sacrificed for you, you sacrificed for others. How I loved you, show them how to love by loving them. Well, so in in terms of this idea of I make you believe, uh, it's a little bit of awe to me. So let's say I come to you and say, you know, you have to believe this in order to be saved. Um, but what if you have doubts? What if you have questions about the faith? Could you just shift your logic to, you know, be able to accept that all of a sudden? I mean, I, I understand most of, some of us were sort of grown up in the tradition, but what if you were not? What if you had different religious background? What if you had no religious upbringing? What if you didn't, you know, you believed in so many other, there's tons of other religions out there. You know, there's, besides Christianity and all the subset of Christianity, besides Islam, besides Judaism, besides, you know, there's Hinduism, there's Taoism, there's Rastafarians, there's CrossFit, there is all sorts of things out there uh, that, you know, they're really committed, aren't they? CrossFit. Earth, which is, you know, they're like the opposite of a fight club. First rule of fight club, or first rule of CrossFit, always talk about CrossFit. Um, can't remember where, yeah. So, anyhow, there's, you know, there's six, there's Shinto's, there's Shintoism, there is uh, Taoism, there's so many different things that's out there, and I think it's, it's kind of, we're neglecting sort of this reason and understanding if we're not able to engage with this idea that, yeah, sure, you're committed to their religion, but, you know, we have to figure out and engage in a conversation. And it's not all about sort of this idea of convincing a person. See, real change, the question is, is it real change? Is there real change that's happening at a heart level? And obviously, I think sometimes people can make a change quickly in their minds, um, What if I tell my kids, you have to eat your vegetables, you have to eat healthy, you have to repent of your barbecue-loving ways and pizza life and come to the, you know, the gospel of vegetables? And, uh, you know, would they all of a sudden start eating healthy? Would they all of a sudden having this habit and being changed from inside out? It's funny, like, my wife actually had this conversation because we're trying to, like, get get them to understand sugar. Too much sugar is bad. You can have a little bit here and there, but, you know, or when daddy's in the closet because you don't want to be in front of the kids when you're eating sugar. So I hide when I'm eating something. (laughs) But 
So uh, my wife's telling the, the kids, uh, you know, like sugar, you can't have too much of sugar. And, and Joe, our five-year-old, he's so frustrated. He's like not understanding. Why do they have to mix something that is so good with something that's bad? And, and I, that's the truth, you know. That kid does speak the truth uh, in that. But I think you need some sort of an evidence of some sort of a personal experience that helps you to have confidence in this belief. Uh, There was this theologian from Spain named Michael Servetus who had a different idea of Trinity in mind. He actually, for him, in his conviction, he could not see Trinity in the Bible. And and they they told, you know... um, the, him and John Calvin, they were sparring back and forth with letters and w- words, and, and, and John Calvin, you know, really wanted to get uh, Michael Savitas. Uh, but for Michael Savitas, you know, for, for some of them, like, just say the word, uh, you know, th- that you ch- can check the box of this trinity and, and be able to say the eternal begotten son. And he was not able to bring up to himself to say that even at the stakes right before he was burned alive. Um, the story goes, supposedly, the, green, the wood was very green, so it took about six hours for him to die. Uh, but even towards the end, he sort of kept up and did not change his mind. He just could not bring himself to make him change. So I, for me, it's a little... You know, if I say all of a sudden, okay, I accept the Trinity, I mean, would people believe, Michael? You know, if all of us, if someone had a gun to my head and say, hey, believe, uh, you know, in Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles or whatever, you know, I'll be like, okay. You know, there is no, you see what I'm saying? There's sort of this, this gap of what is what you consider belief and what you're actually being committing to. There's a huge difference there. So, the, so you know, you got to think through all the implications of what this means. You know, you might be able to shift your logic. You might be able to shift your brain, and you may declare, this is part of my belief system. But it, it takes a while for these beliefs to sort of um, to work through all the implications, to work through all the different parts within your brain and your heart and your soul. And so the question is, are you really saved if you're trying to just avoid eternal damnation, if that's the incentive? Now, obviously, again, God can only judge the heart. Um, But what's odd here is that within this legal framework, within this legal mindset, there's these mental boxes to check. And what's more complicated, I know it's more complicated than that. Uh, but I think in some way down the road, we water down this understanding and significance of not just salvation, but what it means to follow Jesus. What's interesting in, uh, in the New Testament, it talks about salvation in three different tenses, in the past, present, and future. In, uh, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, For the word of the cross is falling for those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, who are being saved, it is the power of God. So there's this idea of being saved, being in the process, from uh, being saved from sin. 
In Romans chapter 5, verse 10, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now, not that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. And there is this idea of salvation that is to come. So salvation being talked about in the New Testament shows that it was much more understood in a holistic manner rather than reducing it to a singular event. Because it's a process. You're being transformed of the renewal of your mind. It's not this one-time thing that's happening. People may change behaviors quickly on the surface, but for those changes to actually take root, it has to come from their heart and soul. It has to be worked out. Now, what this points to regarding salvation is that it's much more of a covenant rather than a contract. And I think the how we deal today is much more like a contract when it comes to our relationship with God. Well, I mean, what's the difference for many people? I think, you know, for some people, uh, they don't realize the difference between covenant and contract. Uh, could be, I mean, no fall of ours because there isn't that much covenants left. I mean, the only covenant that's really still here is marriage. And, you know, increasingly it's being treated like a contract. So in this mind, contract is transactional, usually business nature. Covenants are relational and can be transformational. Contract is something that's legally binding. It, it, it focuses on self-preservation. It's all about making a deal. It's, the contracts are essentially based on mistrust. I want to have that in writing. I want to make sure that's down in writing. Let's make sure we have all of that. And so, you know, t- some contracts are obviously tough to get out of. Covenants are very much based on trust and a relationship. You have to think of it like a marriage. You're making a vow. You're pledging to one another, which is the foundation for it being faithful to one another. To have and to hold from this day forward, for better or for worse, type of idea. So it totally has this power to transform you. In the Old Testament, a covenant actually meant to cut. Referring to the cutting of the animal into two parts. Uh, and what happens is, you know, you have the, the animal that's cut in uh, one side and another side. And both of you who are making a covenant sort of walk together to sort of signify you're in this together. You're in this covenant. Um, you're entering into a relationship. It's not your, it's a contract of a one quick deal or whatever. It is an ongoing event that's happening. Uh, you know, it's, it's kind of funny because, like, sometimes, like, most of the time in wedding ceremonies, they have, like, uh, you know, these additional ceremonies, uh, like, either tying the rope and, you know, and, uh, God is the third rope or whatever, and you're tying it, or the sand coming together, or the lights, candles, you know. That would be a very unique uh, ceremony to sort of have an animal cut and just walk through it. That would be pretty gross, a little bit bizarre, but if you're going for unique um, Yeah, that would be sick if someone did that. Okay. Covenant in the Bible so refers to this God's oath or promise. It's not just being symbolic, but there's this great deal of significance built into this idea of covenant. So the problem with salvation in this contract framework is that it can be something that can be purchased with your prayer. Maybe it's part of your cognitive belief system, but it's still very former way of thinking. You know, burn enough animal sacrifices, maybe God will be happy. Maybe God won't be angry with us. And and so salvation is something you enter exactly like a marriage, 
And, and what we see in the, you know, continually in the Bible, in the Old Testament and the New Testament, the, Hosea of, you know, the, the story of Hosea and Gomer, the, what we see in you know, Paul describing how marriage is this sort of representation of God and us. What we see in, in uh, Revelations chapter 19 where we're going into the wedding feast and that being uh, sort of us and God sort of consummating the marriage uh, between us. So, so Jesus is continually, continuously being shown as the bridegroom, we as the bride. And here is this sort of wedding uh, uh, framework for us uh, to sort of tell us this, this, is, this covenant, it's not abstract. It's real. It's in the here and now. And I think for us in the gospel, the good news is not about escaping hell, and having some gold mansions uh, when you die. The good news is he died for us because he loved us. Because he ascribed this utmost value, unsurpassable worth to each one of us. To humanity despite our shortcomings. Great thing is, here he is to liberate us from this sort of bondage of deception. Bondage of religion and reveal us the true father heart of God. So similar to marriage, we say, I do. Since it's real and not abstract, it's, it, it's able to change us. It's able to save us from our sin. It's able to save us from ourselves. It's able to save us from condemnation, save us from guilt, save us from uh, our addiction, save us from our, our troubles, from all that crap, all by grace. And so you're not just saying a vow and everything's perfect. You have to change and stop acting like a single person. You know, it's not about my beliefs about my marriage that will keep my marriage working. It's the work that you put in that makes the relationship work. It's because you're putting sacrifice in there. You're, you're, you're putting work into that relationship. And that's what makes that relationship work. When someone asks you about your marriage, it's a little bit odd, you know, about saying what I believe about my marriage, you know. You don't all of a sudden talk about those things It's because it, you're being able to treat marriage like a contract. So your mindset will be, I want what is owed to me. And if I do this, do I lose the benefits of the contract? And I think sometimes that's how uh, many Christians are sort of treating the, the relationship and, and sort of treating the church in that sense. Um, so when you think of it in this contract point of view, I think many times you do only what is required of you. Uh, you, take partake, you partake in this covenant, and sort of, it has to go beyond this sort of letter of the law. There's an interesting story told by Peter Rollins um, where he sort of tries to point out, I think, how people take Christianity like a, like a job that they don't want. You just do the minimum work, you know, just, just to get by, just to get the paycheck. And so the story is, Jesus comes to town and, and you know, says, your law says, um, um, eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. I say, if a soldier, a uh, Roman soldier, tells you to carry his stuff for a mile, carry it two miles. And then, let's say, Jesus leaves. And what happens is, they make that into a law. Because they just didn't get it. And Jesus comes back and says, your law says care for two miles. I say care for three miles. And, and so 
what happens is they treat this as a requirement and it becomes a new law and, and it's nothing more than that. It's nothing that's transformative. Think about how God must feel, I think, with his people treating salvation like a contract or just a certain set of beliefs. You have to believe this like the checkboxes. Think about the prodigal son and imagine the heartbreak uh, when the son asks for what, he, what is owed to him. That, you know, like he's not even dead. And you're like, I want the inheritance. I want part of that inheritance now. Give it to me. And, and he takes the money and, and lives his life, does his thing, and he just runs out, has nothing else. And he's desperate. And he comes back to God. He comes back to his dad and says, you know, you could take me as a slave. You could take me as one of your workers uh, because I know I don't deserve it. And here is Father God embracing his son, kissing him, and throwing a party for him. Because, and the story says, and the scripture says, for my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Um, as I was thinking through this story, I remember uh, something that happened uh, about a year ago where we went to a Disney World as a family. And I think we were sort of leaving uh, Disney World. And we saw this mom frantically looking for, I believe, her son or her child. And my wife was trying to, you know, like try to help her. But you could totally tell she was going against time. She was just frantically in tears and crying, just trying to look for her son. And all the parents sort of felt that because they, you know, the idea of losing a child, that's unbearable. And as we were walking, you know, we, we told the authorities, and as we were walking in another direction, we, about 100 feet away, we saw the kid. There he was, crying, looking for his mommy. And we, uh, we were trying to see where the mom went because she was moving super fast like a ninja or whatever. And here comes, she zoomed by us um, before we could tell her. She zoomed by us, picks up her son, embraces her son because she thought she lost her son for a second. And, and I think that is a perfect imagery of this idea of salvation, of where we were lost And here is God, not angry with us, because we were lost. We were not here. We were not listening. We were not present. We were out somewhere far away. It's not that God was distant. We were the one who were distant. And here we come, realizing that mistake, and God coming and embracing and hugging us and loving on us. Every parent who saw that, I mean, I was like sort of crying as I was walking out of Disney World. It's like, this is the happiest place on earth. This is the happiest place on earth, you know? Um, What's interesting in Romans 10, the passage that we started out with, first half of this is actually quoting Deuteronomy. Uh, Much of it is actually uh, verse 6 and 7. I think it's quoting Deuteronomy 30. Uh, In verse 6 and 7, there were some at the time who thought they had to be good enough for the Messiah to finally come. And, and in the same regard, they thought they had to be good enough for Jesus to be resurrected as well, this Messiah to be resurrected. And so, it's, it, so here was Paul trying to tell them, it's not based on your efforts. It's not based on how hard you try. And what's fascinating in verse chapter 9, 
Oh, oh, sorry, in verse 9, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So you're looking at this and, and, and uh, you know, just looking at it at face value, but there is a, a deeper thing here. In this language, there is this about making Jesus Lord. And at this time in the, in the Roman world, they were increasingly expected to acknowledge that Caesar was Lord. So, so to say Jesus is no Lord is not like us saying Jesus is Lord. For them, to say Jesus is Lord is also saying Caesar is not. What you have is a false thing. And so it has huge implications. It's going against the norm and becoming an easy target for them at the time because, you know, it was a point of persecution. And I don't know if, you know, if you guys read about sort of the early Christian and Nero, I mean, he was psychopath. He was crazy, egomaniac. And what he would do is he would use Christians to light his garden parties. He would either tie them up or, you know, uh, nail them to the stake and, and, you know, some sort of a tar-like substance. And he would light them and, and none of them... Um, confessed that Caesar was Lord. They held their belief. And, and it's pretty dis- disgusting, but you know, there was Nero in a garden party, party and that amused him, supposedly. You know, that he, he, he loved the idea of doing this, of, of torturing, whatnot. But in this, pas- so in this passage, it's not simply about saying it. Paul's speaking of this lordship of Jesus and the belief in Jesus' resurrection as the evidence of saving faith, not as a condition of salvation. So it's not talking about leading people to pray or sort of a simple prayer. It's talking about faith and expressing this trust in Christ. Well, okay, so what does that mean for us? Because some of this has to be worked out internally, but some of this has to be worked out externally, especially in terms of how we view missions and how we do evangelism. And, and fundamental misunderstanding, I think, mission of God is sort of related to this understanding of salvation. What does it mean for you to be saved? Um, Leslie Newbegin, uh, who was a missionary in the 19th or 20th century uh, to Asia, Uh, He talked about the greatest heresy in monotheism is the idea that few and chosen have been saved by God for privilege rather than for service. The idea that we have been saved for our own benefit. And he used the word monotheism because he's saying that it has continued on from Judaism to Christianity to us. And so it's this idea that I'm loving God with all my heart and God loves me, but I'm not really sure about loving my neighbor as myself. Maybe I'll do that someday, but not today. It's totally believing Jesus died on the cross for me, but not believing that he died for others and for anyone else. So there's this huge gap, I think, in our theology, the understanding of God. Even when we think about Israel, the Abrahamic covenant was, I'll bless you so that you can bless others. And bless the nations. And so God doesn't choose Israel for the benefit or to the exclusion of everyone else, but to the benefit of everyone else. So I think we're good. I think showing kindness and doing these you know, service projects and whatnot, and we need to continue in doing these things. But I think we have to sort of go beyond how can we, in a creative and innovative way, sort of, sort of take this gospel, take the salvation message in a new, fresh light. Not to change it, 
but to contextualize it for our generation, for our environment. And so I'm going to end with this, and communion service, you guys can, re- can be ready. Um, I think throughout the sermon, you may have agreed on how we present the salvation. It may be flawed, but I think sometimes we stop short at there. Uh, we stop short of what is going wrong, but we also need to focus on what we can make it right. Jesus doesn't seem to be judge-based on the intellectual content in their head. He seemed to meet people's need and, you know, doesn't hold them until they believe correctly. So my challenge to you is, how can we do that? How can we bring fresh life into this and, uh, to meet people's needs, to share the love of Jesus? I know many of you are doing it in, a, in an awesome way, but for all of us to look at it together, how can we share the love of God in a meaningful and impactful way? We have to believe in the priesthood of all believers, meaning that God empowers all of us to take action because you're in this together. It's a marriage. It's a covenant. It's our responsibility as well. It's not up to just Jesus or just professional Christians. It's up to all of us. So let's pray. Father God, thank you, Lord, for the sacrifice that you have um, for the sacrifice that you have made. Without, without that, we would be totally lost. We wouldn't know what to do, oh God. But you have given us hope. You have given us light. And I pray, oh Father, for anyone here who's struggling, let them know that you're at the here and now. That salvation is here. That the kingdom of God is here. And I pray for transformation to take place. And that it's not, it doesn't just stop in our belief system, but it takes down and, and take over our heart and soul and our mind as well. So, Father, we submit to you and not just say, Jesus, you are Lord. But we say that, Jesus, you are Lord over all. That it's real and it's, it's evident in our lives. So, Father, as we take communion, um, help us to ponder through these things. Help us to work out what salvation means. Help us to understand what this covenant means and what this marriage should look like. So we thank you, Lord. We thank you, Lord. We thank you, Lord, for your community, for your sacrifice and your love. In the name of Jesus, amen.